letter that changed the world, the biblical theology of Romans. This is part seven. Tonight, grace must never be used as an excuse for sin. It's, it's, uh, Paul gets into these sections. It's not all like this, but three, four, and five, he gets into some theological arguments and he takes different positions and analyzes them and kind of shoots down the ones that are wrong and enforces the ones that are right. You just have to think through some of the things he says, but we're a very bright, bright bunch, and I know it won't be hard for us. Grace must never be used as an excuse for sin. Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read 20 verses. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? I'm going to talk about that confusing phrase because Paul uses it in several different places in the New Testament. Does their faithlessness, their uh, unwillingness to keep the law, does it nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, even as it is written, quote, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, in other words, if my sin magnifies God's justice in punishing sin, if, it, if my sin gives God glory in, in the way that he exercises his judgment, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. In other words, I'm just making arguments here. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If my weakness, my failure to keep the law magnifies the justice of God and brings him glory, then am am I not doing a good thing? That's what he's saying. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. In other words, New Testament Christianity, right from the beginning, had this at its root, that grace means God doesn't take sin all that seriously. That sin is rampant in the body of Christ, that misunderstanding. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews? Paul writes, and he says we because he's a Jew, and he knows that this is a good way to include himself and bring them into the argument. Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. See, and at the beginning, notice in verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Do you see that right at the beginning? And now look what he says. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And you want to say, okay, Paul, like, make up your mind here. Paul's saying there were blessings that came. The old covenant, the scriptures, the Jewish race through whom the Messiah would come. But in terms of keeping the law and maintaining your standard of righteousness before God apart from Christ, they're no better off at all. They don't do it any better than the Gentiles. That's what he's saying. Not at all, Uh, middle of verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. 
And you wonder if these words are really true, eh? None is righteous. Not one. Well, Mother Teresa. What about Billy Graham? Not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. And he says it again. Not even one. You think I'm exaggerating? No, I'm not. Not, not even one. 7.7 billion people on the planet. Not one of them righteous. He keeps going with these quotes. These are quotes from the Old Testament. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Look at all these quotation marks. These are just quote after quote after quote. He's just piling these things up. 15, their feet are swift, swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what is that? Seven, eight quotations just randomly pulled together showing the plight of mankind. 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, he's just been quoting it, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We can't imagine what these words from Paul sounded like to his first Jewish audiences and hearers. If it was true, as Paul says, that circumcision, that Old Testament sign of Abraham's covenant, the covenant with Abraham and his, and his descendants. If, if it's true that circumcision didn't preserve the Jews from God's wrath and judgment, then, then what was the point? Why? Why do we have this much of your Bible? If it didn't preserve the Jew from God's wrath and judgment, then what was the point of calling out this special covenant people in the first place? W why would God require something like that covenant sign if it had no saving merit? What was the whole point in having a covenant people? Why do you have an Old Testament? Why doesn't the Bible start with Matthew and the birth of Jesus? And there was a lot at stake in that question. I mean, if, if there was no blessing to be had by the Jewish identity and calling, then the whole uh, question of God's integrity was kind of called into question because it was God who pronounced the blessing on Abraham and his, and his covenant people. And if there was no blessing, then God seems to be misleading them. And this is the issue Paul knows he has to come to terms with when he writes to his fellow Jewish audience. Point number one. What was the purpose and the blessing of God's calling of the Jewish people? And, and he deals with that in the first two verses. What advantage has the Jew? 
What's the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. This is typical Paul. To begin with, he's going to make several points. He only starts with this one. To begin with, in verse 2, but he loses himself in the argument and he never does get right back to the other points. It's like if you've been in my Christian ed class. It happens to me all the time in there. First, he says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul begins with this because, because uh, the scriptures themselves make so much of the fact that God's special revelation, remember we talked about God's general revelation, his general revelation in nature and in conscience to all people, and then God's special revelation through his word, which went, first of all, this is Paul's point, it went to the Jewish people. Deuteronomy 4.8 and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Or Psalm 147, 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. So, first of all, there's the specific Old Testament revelation, the law, the written revelation of God. It's the first advantage. Secondly, the Jews had the privilege to give testimony of God's greatness to all the nations of the earth. Isaiah 42, 5 and 6. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and, and stretched them out. Who, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you. This is, this is speaking through the prophet to Judah. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Or Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And the way, the tool, the instrument God was using under the old covenant was the nation Israel. To be a blessing to the whole earth and all the nations of the earth. The third advantage, it was through Jewish flesh that the Messiah of all people would be born that was the highest honor of the Abrahamic covenant. And you can read Matthew and you can read Paul and they're both labor to make this link between Abraham and Christ kind of visible and, and obvious. Matthew does it through these boring genealogical passages that most people don't even read. In Matthew 1, 16 and 17, he's going through these generations. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the fort deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Don't get all bogged down in that. He's showing the link with Jacob. Jacob. Or Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say offsprings. Referring to many, 
but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so Paul makes this incredible point that when you talk about Christ, you're talking about the promised offspring of Abraham. And so you can see how this covenant with Abraham is, 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 is global. It's, it's, it's meant to manifest Christ to the world, the gospel, saving power of God. All of that, all of that came through the Jewish people. It's a great blessing. Point number two. Paul uses his own people, the Jews, to prove that God is faithful to judge sin in all people. Now you get into some difficult verses. What if some were unfaithful? Not everyone was faithful under the Abrahamic covenant. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So God makes this covenant, makes it with Abraham. But you can see all sorts of people. Read your Old Testament. That's why those terrible stories are in there, to show that there were all all sorts of Jews that didn't keep covenant, weren't faithful to the Lord at all, were wicked, were idolaters, were adulterers. And God judged them. So here's Paul talking to his, his, his Jewish friends, and he says, so when, when they're faithless and they, they receive wrath like the surrounding nations, is, is God breaking his covenant? Is God then not faithful? By no means. Verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's a tricky passage. Paul's sentences get longer. They get more convoluted. They're more argumentative. They string together Old Testament quotations. But, but he's got one idea. He goes at it in all sorts of directions, very involved, but there's one idea. Paul wants the Jew to know that no, no covenant disobedience renders God faithless. Paul is repeating the point he nailed down in Romans 2.25 where he said, For circumcision indeed has value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And he repeats the same idea in chapter 3 where we are tonight because the Jewish mind found the idea of God judging his own covenant people, he found that very hard to digest. They find that very hard to digest. I mean, circumcision, that covenant sign, was viewed as implying unqualified protection from the wrath of God. And that's why, in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, Paul makes the point that God's faithfulness to himself requires that he is always consistently contrary to sin. The greater the blessing, the greater the judgment for abusing that blessing. Look at Amos. Is this in your notes, Amos 3.2? Okay. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And then the last part of the verse doesn't seem to fit with the first half. 
Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You've been blessed those three ways that I listed. The, the great blessings of the old covenant people. And when they're faithless, it brings greater judgment. But that's not God being faithless. That's God being faithful to himself, his character. And to deepen that point, you know what Paul does? In the fourth verse, you, you might not notice it right away. He's actually quoting the most famous Israelite of all. That part of verse 4 where it says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see that in verse 4? Paul didn't just make that up. He gets that from Psalm 51, and those are the words of David. That great Jewish king, the man after God's own heart. David's cry as he brings his sin to God Psalm 51.4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When God judges his covenant people, he's not being faithless. He's being faithful to his own holiness. I mean, David's words, they're just full of emotion, aren't they? David, David fully remembered burying his son due to God's judgment on his adultery with Bathsheba. David was obviously Jewish. He was anointed by Samuel. He was God's chosen king. And now David has to come to terms with a God who took the life of his own son in judgment. Read it, 2 Samuel 12, 9 through 14. So, did God's calling David mean God couldn't judge David? Well, no, it never did mean that. And Paul's trying to show the Jews from, from their own scriptures, from the life of David. He's trying to show them that. This isn't in your notes. You want to look up a, a challenging passage of scripture that, I don't, I don't mean this, how can I say it? I don't mean this in a, in a condemning way. I'm, I'm simply stating a fact, a passage that is almost universally misread. Is 2 Timothy, this isn't in your notes. I was just, actually I came in late because I was just putting this together right before the service. 2 Timothy 2, 10 to 13. If you can, you have your iPhone, or look this up, this passage. 2 Timothy 2, 10 to 13. Paul writes these words, and here's what he says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For, and now here's the part that people get mixed up on. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I am working my way through a very 
good, widely circulated devotional book right now. And this past week, came across this passage. New, I, I had the idea that I was going to refer to it tonight. And this very well-known writer reads those last words. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And, and he says this, don't, don't live in fear of God. Don't live in fear of failing. failing. Even, if, even if you are faithless and you break covenant with him, don't worry, he's always going to be faithful to you. And it's one of those passages you read that and you think, well, isn't, isn't that nice? And I'm just here to tell you, that is not what that passage says. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And you can't take the next phrase. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. You can't take that one verse and use it to... It makes everything he said before that meaningless. If we deny him, he will also deny us. What he means is, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, and he's telling us what kind of faithful it is. For he cannot deny himself. God will be faithful to himself in judging people who deny him. That's the faithfulness that's being talked about. Not faithfulness to you and faithfulness to me if we deny Christ. That's exactly the point Paul is making in the Romans 3 passage. If we deny him, he will deny us. Why? Well, because if we're faithless, he has to be true to himself. It's not a positive passage. It's a warning passage. Don't think... Paul is saying in the 2 Timothy passage. Don't think that it's just a matter of saying some words. Don't think it's just a matter of looking back and saying, I made a decision for Christ in 1978. It it isn't, Jesus didn't die for your decision. He died for your faithfulness, your devotion, your heart. And if we deny him, he will deny us. You don't have to just go to Paul. You can go to Jesus. Do you remember where he said about people who are ashamed of him and and he would be ashamed of them at the judgment? It's the same idea. It's it's universally taught in the Scriptures. So so it's not just a matter of saying certain things and and having certain practices and, and having some religious routine and then living faithlessly to the Lord. He says, if you do that, don't count on your religion because God will be faithful to his holy character. lot to think about in that. God will never act out of character. And in our Romans text, Paul's conclusion is exactly the same, that God is always faithful to himself. He never acts out of character. The oracles of God committed to Israel contain not only promises but warnings. Therefore, Paul says, when God judges sin, even in his own people, He's being faithful to himself and faithful to his promise. Three. The magnifying of God's justice or grace must never be used as an excuse to take sin lightly. Five through eight. We're almost, we're two-thirds done. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. So, 
I'm sinful. Not just in the sense of failing. None of us is perfect. I get that. I'm talking about I'm faithless. I turn from God. I use grace as just a license to continuing in, in, continue in sin. A bad heart. And if that heart of mine brings, God is glorified in judging it. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how would God judge the world? There's a moral foundation under the whole universe. God acts consistently with his character. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, my wickedness brings about God's justice and he's glorified in his justice, then why am I being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just. All right. Whether in extending unbelievable, forgiving mercy or righteously judging rebellion. Either way, in whichever way he expresses his character, the way he deals with sin will ultimately reveal his glory. So then Paul anticipates another argument. It's boiled down most simply in that fifth verse where he says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So how fair is it for God to punish us for indirectly manifesting his glory and judging our sin? Do you you see how convoluted the arguments get? It's hard to imagine anybody actually processing that. I've never sat in my office and heard someone say that specifically. But the reason this text, as difficult as it is, the reason it's important to study is it reveals how seriously Paul takes your, my, the unsaved, our limitless capacity to excuse our disobedience to God when we choose to. We can rationalize. We can spin out all sorts of arguments. Look at point number four. In terms of standing under judgment for sin, Jew, Greek, Jew, and Gentile are absolutely equal. Paul strings together that horrible necklace of Old Testament quotes. I I read them to you. And he's, 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 any one of them is enough, you know. But this is Paul. When he wants to make a point, he wants to drive the nail all the way in. And so he just, he just marshals quote after quote after quote. Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. Not in terms of their performance. Their blessings, yes, they have some blessings, but not in terms of their performance. For we have already charged that all, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then these quotes. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What are you doing, Paul? This is not the kind of thing people come to church on a Sunday morning to listen to. The words are cited to sum up Paul's main idea. It's in chapter 3, verse 9. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Last point. Paul's conclusion now on the equal guilt of Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek before the law of God. Now we know, 19 and 20, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. You get this picture of people people wanting to express with their mouths their innocence. They got arguments. And it's not just a matter of people being silent. It's their mouths being stopped. It, it's, it's, you ever have it, you're talking to, maybe it's one of your children, and, and, and they know that they've done something wrong, and they're trying to justify it before you even approach them directly, and, and the talk starts coming out of the mouth. Well, I don't know. And you have to go, wait, wait, quiet. Here's what you did. And that's the picture. The picture is people who constantly babbling, projecting their righteousness, making their excuses. You don't know the situation I was raised in. You don't know how, of course I'm seeing another woman. If you saw the way my wife treated me, of course I'm doing this, and blah, 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 blah. We do that. And so the law comes and just says, shh. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world accountable before God. We don't think about that enough, do we? You see all sorts of things going on. Watch the news. Look at corruption in government, in finance, in, in so many areas all over the world. Look at the moral standards and the way people justify everything. Look at the immorality. Look at the greed. Look at the idolatry. And this idea that God is going to, there will be a time when the whole world, God's going to go, shh. And all the world, billions and billions of people standing silent before God with nothing to say. The whole world will be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is one of the very few places where Paul delineates the purpose of the law. And what the law does... It reveals my sinfulness in two ways. One of two ways. First, through the law, people can be encouraged to attempt good works to establish their own righteousness before God. 
and to whatever degree, Paul, Philippians 3, to whatever degree they can be blameless before the law, they can feel they've established their standing before God, not on his terms, not so that he is glorified, but so that they are glorified. Glorified by their moral, their religious, their humanitarian accomplishments. Look what I've done. And the first thing the law does is it, is it reveals when people are standing on their own righteousness rather than trusting in Christ. The second work of the law is it, it condemns. It condemns the things I'd like to excuse. It makes my sin official before God rather than just innocent character flaws. When Paul says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin, verse 20, he doesn't mean just a mental awareness that sin exists. He means, he means in our own hearts. We, we start to feel the weight of all that we ought to be and aren't. Okay, so, so here we sit on a Sunday night, a cold Sunday night. And a good bunch of people, hundreds of us. Why, why are we doing this? I mean, that's, that passage is just a lot of work. It's a lot of work to teach. And it's a lot of work to hear. You know what should happen? When we think of all of this, and how devoutly religious people like the Jews can try and stand on their own righteousness apart from Christ, and wicked people who break the law can try and argue their way out of their own sin. I would think that all of this, it ought to when we gather around the communion elements in a minute. It ought to make us all just stop and think, oh, the greatness of salvation in Jesus Christ. That it, that it cuts through my pride my own sense of moral goodness, which is filthy rags, and it cuts through my guilt that makes me feel unworthy and hopelessly lost and undone, that God has provided a righteousness in Christ Jesus and the work of His Spirit that changes my heart to love Him rather than excuse my sin that lets me be honest and transparent and open, that causes me to delight in Him and to trust in Him more and more. That's always the purpose of even dense theological passages like this. They're never meant to just be fodder for intellectual you know, hay spinning, but to draw us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray that that happens tonight. Let's pray when we come to the table. We don't have the tables here anymore. It's just more efficient this way. But you know what I mean. When we gather with the elements that, that somehow Christ shines more brilliantly against the kind of needs we all bring to the cross of Jesus.